a series that's going through five different psalms over January, and today we're going to be looking at Psalm 31, which um, I'm pretty excited about. I think sometimes, and we're going to start a little bit differently this morning, but I think sometimes we forget that the scriptures were written in a time where there wasn't the printing press, and so not everybody had their individual Bible that was leather-bound with their name inscribed on it, and the, the, the community would actually come together and read the scripture, and they would engage in that as a communal experience. And so we're actually going to do that this morning. Now, oftentimes, um, there's that element of, of that here on most Sundays is myself or somebody else would read a scripture that's up here and, and we're gathered as a community. But I think that sometimes it can be great to actually read it in smaller groups um, and, and then be, begin to discuss and process the scripture together. I think it's great for a couple reasons. One, I think it's good because it begins to militate against the consumer church culture that we all know. The culture where we just walk in the doors of our, uh, of our church and just sit down and find a comfy spot and then say, well, I'm just here to learn. I'm here for somebody to espouse to me. I'm here. I don't, I don't want to engage all that much. And when we gather in a smaller community and we begin to read the scripture, I think it begins to kind of militate against that. We get out of our idea that church is a place that we show up and we get fed. And for a second reason is we don't necessarily need some guy to stand up here and talk to us about the Bible. Now, it's helpful. I think there's a place for that. I think there's a time for that. But through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can read the Scripture and we can interpret. And that's the beauty of the Spirit's job. And so this morning, we're actually going to do that. So here's the challenge. And I know some of you guys are freaking out right now, and that's okay. Just let it happen. We're going to gather in groups of four to six-ish six -ish people around you. If there's a Bible in that group, that's great. If not, we have um, the scripture out here on sheets. You can raise your hand, but you're going to gather in this little group, and you're going to read that scripture together. So identify one person that's actually going to read it out loud. If you need to, to focus in, close your eyes, and just listen to Psalm 31, because it's beautiful. So one person will read, and then spend four or five minutes and ask the question, what did, I, what did we learn about God in this? What did we learn about God? So we're going to do that. We're going to take maybe five, ten minutes to do that right now. So gather in a little group. If you need the scripture, not somebody in your group has a Bible, raise your hand and we'll pass one out to you. Then I'll gather us back together in about ten minutes. I'm going to give you uh, probably three or four more minutes here. All right, if you haven't already, begin to kind of wrap up those conversations. Now, how many thought that that wasn't maybe as scary as they thought it was going to be? Anybody out there? Here's, here's what's beautiful about that, is that is, that is part of what the community's job is, is to be in each other's lives, to read scripture, and then to talk about it. And it's, it's beautiful to be up here and to see that happening, and I'll throw in a little plug right here, that's... That's essentially what small groups are right there. And so if you're not involved in a small group, again, that's what we're oriented about. That's what we believe in. Uh, and we would encourage you to move that way, to find a group of people to where you can sit down in a living room, sit down wherever, and begin to talk about the scripture and grow in that way. Let me throw it out here. What did we learn about God? And we'll take just a couple of people. We're not going to send the mic around, so just loud and proud. What are some things that you guys learned about God after reading Psalm 31? He protects. Great. 
He is the Redeemer. Cool. Greater than all of our troubles. Always there. Trustworthy. Good. He is our rock and our strength. He sees our affliction and anguish. Cool. Yeah. Gives us unfailing love. Listens to our cries for help. Cool. He is to be feared. Good. If you just paused and thought about those things, that could be the whole talk this morning. I mean, if you really just kind of let those characteristics settle in deeply, we we could be done. Um, After studying this psalm, after reading this psalm over the past couple weeks, I was reminded of three things, and and many of uh, the things that were said out here touched on these things, but I was reminded of three things, and we'll talk about that, but let me give you kind of an overall structure of this psalm first. This is a, what would be classified as an individual lament psalm, but it was written for the community. In your Bible, um, in the title, it probably says that it's a psalm of David. Um, some think it was. There are other scholars that, that don't necessarily think it was a psalm of David, but everybody agrees that it was written for the community. It was written in a, in a place to, where it should be read in community, actually as a song where it would be sung in community. There are two major sections in this psalm. There's the first 18 verses, which is an extended prayer, and then there's those final verses 19 through 24, which is uh, kind of an exclamation of praise. And I want to focus this morning on that first section. There's so much in here, I didn't think that we could take 30 minutes and really get after the whole psalm. So we're going to look at those first 18 verses, and we're going to pull out those three things. Verses 1 through 5 really is a prayer for deliverance. We read this in there, Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me. Then 6 through 8 is this expression of trust. And the writer says, I hate those who cling to idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love. Verses 9 through 13 then begins this lament. And it's really the writer at this point is kind of pleading his case to God. And, And we read these things. Be merciful. I am weak. My eyes are filled with sorrow. My life is consumed with anguish. My strength fails. I have been forgotten. They conspire against me. But then verse 14 is kind of this hinge point, this turning point, and it's once again an expression of trust. And the writer says, but I trust in you. And then 15 through 18 is a prayer of deliverance again. It says, my times are in your hands. Deliver me from their hands. Let your face shine on your servant. Let their lips be silenced. So it's this really beautiful structure of this psalm. And that's the first thing that I was reminded of after reading this. I was reminded that true relationship with God involves wrestling. There's wrestling in a true relationship. And I think when we look at this psalm, you can say that sometimes the form actually speaks louder than the words. How something is written can maybe even be more important than the words that are written. There's an example of this, uh, the book Gadsby. Now, this isn't the great Gadsby, which most of us read our sophomore years, but the book Gadsby, written by Ernest Vincent Wright, and it's a lipogram. Who knows what a lipogram is? 
Yo, nice. There's like one person here. Um, it's, uh, yeah, that's funny. Because um, I would have guessed it would have been you. That's what's so funny about it. Yeah, oh, Patrick. Uh, a lipogram is a kind of constrained writing or word game consisting of writing paragraphs or longer works in which a particular letter or group of letters is avoided. So in this whole book, 50,000 words, the letter E is not used in any word. 150 pages, and the writer does not use a word that contains the letter E. So this is a lipogram. And so Ernest Vincent Wright wrote this book, and the plot is this guy, John Gadsby. I have not read this, so this is not coming out of experience. Um, but this guy writes this book about John Gadsby, who's trying to revitalize a dying city. And he writes this whole book, 150 pages, thereabouts, without using the letter E. And what's interesting about this is the plot isn't the main deal. The form of the book is the important part. It's the fact that he could write 150 pages without using the letter E. And so this is one of those real-world experiences where you actually see that the form or the way something is written is probably more important than the plot of John Gatsby trying to revitalize this dying city. And I think that this psalm speaks to that as well. You see, the form of the psalm kind of, uh, from the psalm moves from words of trust to questioning, back to trust, to pleading, to praising, to thanksgiving. And so you see this real cyclical pattern in it. And in that way, it's incredibly honest. It's filled with emotion and pain and frustration and then joy in the cyclical pattern. And I think it really captures the essence of humanity. It captures the essence of our often fleeting moods and emotions. I mean, isn't this how we feel often in our relationship with the Lord? One day, we're marveling at the goodness of God, at his grandeur. We're, we're in love with the Lord. But then the next day, we feel abandoned by everybody. We feel abandoned by God. We're pleading for his protection, for his trust, for him just to get us through this day. This comes in seasons in our lives, or maybe in your world it comes daily. You wake up in the morning feeling great, but you end up going to bed feeling terrible. And so I think the form of this psalm really captures that idea. It shows that the writer is wrestling with God. And then it gives an outlet for the community to sing that, to say it's okay to wrestle with God. Wrestling with God is a human experience. It happens. Moses wrestled with God he didn't think he could lead the Israelites, but God said, no, you can. I am with you. Jacob literally wrestles with God in Genesis 32 until he's blessed. Job wrestles with God in the midst of his pain. Jesus even wrestles with God in the garden as he says, take this cup, if there's any other way, but your will be done. So we see this idea of wrestling with God throughout the scripture, and I think that this psalm, the lives and stories of these men that I just listed, gives us that freedom to wrestle. My wife and I, when we were, uh, we'd been married for two years, and we began, uh, or we, we said, hey, it's time for us to begin our family. And so we were trying to get pregnant, and, um, and it just wasn't happening. And for a year, nothing happened, and, and my wife, um, you know, was, we were both kind of get, beginning to get a little worried and say, well, what's the deal? You know, it should happen sooner than this. We kind of just anticipated that within a year that we would be pregnant and, and have this family. And two years go by, and we begin to see some doctors and so forth. And, and at the end of three years, a doctor pretty much just said, hey, I, I just don't think it's going to be possible 
for you to have kids. And all around us, and it's classic, whenever you begin something like this, all around you, you begin to notice the people that are having kids. We were working with uh, Young Life, and I've mentioned this before, but my wife was walking incredibly closely with this gal who came out of an, a, just a terrible family situation, and at the age of 15, she gets pregnant. My wife, meanwhile, in, in just utter pain and brokenness, is walking alongside this girl who doesn't want this baby at all, and my wife's putting on a baby shower for her, and I mean, it's just one of those gut-wrenching situations where it just doesn't seem fair. People all around us, well-intentioned people, would say things like, oh, we'll just keep trying, just have fun. <laughs> they would say, <laughs> good, you guys got that joke in the front. <clears throat> people would say, hey, when, when God closes a door, he'll open a window. You know, just, it's going to happen. And again, well-intentioned people, but when you're in the midst of pain, those things never quite sound that good. Those things often seem somewhat hollow. There was always the occasional person that would say, well, I got three kids, you can have one of ours. <laughs> and again, it's kind of funny when we're on this side of it, but in the moment, that's a terribly hurtful thing to say. When you have this, my wife who's incredibly broken, and in the midst of that, I wrestled with God. We both wrestled with God. But it was this wrestling match for three years, and God, why do you do this? This makes no sense. We're good people, we have jobs, we have everything lined up, and yet the 15-year-old gets pregnant that doesn't want a kid, and we can't get pregnant. Why, why is my wife in so much pain? This makes no sense to me. And we wrestled with God for three years in that. Now, obviously, the Lord is gracious, and he's blessed us with kids, and it's a miracle, and it's wonderful. But I'm so thankful for this time because it taught me what wrestling with God looks like and it actually made my relationship with the Lord real. Jesus was no longer just my buddy. He was no longer the guy that I prayed to just before meals. But Jesus was my Lord. The Lord that protected us, that took care of us, that guided us. My relationship was real because I was able to express anger and hurt and frustration and pain and yet God continued to be faithful, continue to be loving, continue to care for us, to protect us, to guide us. There are times when we need to wrestle with God. There are times when we need to express our anger, when we need to say, this makes no sense to me, God. Why am I in this? Why do I feel this pain? Why do I feel this hurt? I'm not okay with your plans. And I think Psalm 31 says that that's okay. You can wrestle with God. Which then leads us to the second thing that I was reminded of, that God is our lasting refuge. The psalm is filled with this imagery of God being like a refuge, a place of safety, of protection, of rest. Verse, uh, in verse 1 it says, In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Verse 2, my rock and my refuge, a strong, force, a strong fortress. Verse 4, keep me from the trap that is set for me. For you are my refuge. 15, my times are in your hands. 19, how abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all those who take refuge in you. Verse 20, in the shelter of your presence, you keep them safe in your dwelling. Verse 23, the Lord preser preserves those who are true to him. Six out of the 24 verses speak to this idea. That's a fourth of this psalm. Speaks to the idea of God 
being our refuge, which then begs the question is, what is our refuge? What is that in our lives? What is the place or where is the place that you go to when you're hurt, when you're in pain, when you're being attacked, when you need rest, when you need security, when you need protection? We all have a refuge. Superman had the fortress of solitude, so we all have to have a refuge if Superman had one. For me in college, it was my parents' house. And if you're a college student, you probably um, recognize this, some of you do at least, that you, after a long quarter or a semester of eating dorm food and living with your stinky roommate, all you want to do is just get home and have mom's cooking and your own bed and that stuff. That, and so in college, for me, it was my parents' house. And you would go home and you would just be able to wear sweatpants and watch TV and hang out all day and just rest. But we all have that refuge somewhere. And it's not only a physical reality. I think actually maybe more often than not, it's more mental. Our refuge can be, where do we go in our head? Russ mentioned last week this idea that you are what you mutter. We've been talking a lot about the mutterings throughout the Psalms. Similarly, I think what you mutter will dictate where you find refuge. The psalmist begins and ends his psalm by exclaiming the goodness of God. It's almost as if he's muttering to himself that God is his refuge. That he's trying to remind himself in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his lament, that God is his lasting refuge. So when you're enduring trials, when you're being persecuted, where do you go in your head? What are the things you begin to mutter to yourself in those times? Do you go to your own strength? Do you try to withdraw from people around you? Try to withdraw from the circumstances? Try to seek refuge through the justification of your own sin? Try to offload onto somebody else, or maybe you take it out on a spouse? But where is that refuge that you find, that place of safety? Because if it's not God, it will not lead to deliverance. God is our lasting refuge. And it's only through him that we find true deliverance and true healing from our pain, from our hurt, from the trials that we're enduring. I, was, uh, I had the privilege of taking a group of high school guys on a, a backpacking and mountaineering trip about three years ago. And this is, uh, this is like in my wheelhouse. I love being out in the outdoors. And so... I took this crazy group of um, six guys, four, four to six, maybe five, I can't remember. Um, but we went off and, and we were paired with two guides and we went up into the mountains of British Columbia. First day was a bluebird day, it was beautiful. And we were like, oh man, we were in store for some incredible weather, it's gonna be great. Then the, you could, as we were hiking that second day, you could begin to see the clouds moving in and we're like, oh, this will blow over, checking barometers and all sorts of stuff. And this is just, it's not gonna last that long. Well, it poured for the next five days on us. Just, it's the kind where you like wring out your sleeping bag and water is, is flowing out of your sleeping bag. There was one day specifically, and actually two of the guys that I went with are, are in the crowd this morning, which is real fun, but um, there was one, one kind of defining moment. It was on day three, and we had hiked for, um, for a, a better part of the morning, and we had this established uh, camp that we wanted to get to 
but it was, um, it was getting to the point of this is not safe. It is no longer safe. The rain had turned to sleet, had turned to snow, back to rain, and so we were drenched. It was real cold outside. We're hiking in snow at this point. And so we get to this um, kind of to this little rock outcropping, and the thunderclouds start to roll in, and so now there's lightning and thunder going on, and we say, well, we, we're not going to make it <laughs> to where we need to go. It's a, pretty much a whiteout at this point. We say, we, we just need to set up camp right now. And to set up camp, we had something called a McKinley fly, which is essentially one millimeter of uh, nylon. It's like tent material. And you put one post, uh, one pole right in the middle of it, and it just builds this like a, essentially a circus tent that could fit um, you know, five, six guys. And so we put this thing up, and that involves taking your gloves off and then tying knots, which at this point our hands are like bricks and you can barely even do anything. Your dexterity is lost. And so we finally get this thing up and we all crowd in to this McKinley fly and we sought refuge in this place for eight hours. While the sleet is just coming down, it's windy. We're having to hold the sides down so it doesn't blow over us on us and the thunder's outside and we're like, oh man, this is a metal pole right in the middle of this thing. <laughs> let's, just, <laughs> let's just really hope that nothing happens here. And it was one of those defining moments in the trip where at that moment, it, well, it's, you could call it this, it's class two fun. So there's class one fun, which is fun in the moment, and then class two fun is a type of, type of fun where when you look back on your experience, it was fun. <laughs> we were having class two fun at this point. But we were all huddled around this pole and it was one of those defining moments, just not only in that trip, but in our lives, where you have this group of guys to get together, this community, and we're beginning to talk about scripture, talk about life, getting into real life issues as the weather outside is terrible. And we all at that moment kind of knew, wow, this is, this is one of those thin places where we're together in this incredible situation. And all that's really protecting us from the outside weather is one millimeter of nylon fabric, and it was just enough to keep us warm, just enough to keep us a little bit drier, just enough to provide this place of refuge for us. And I think God is sometimes like that in the fact that he's refuge. He may not immediately extract you from the circumstance, from the pain, from the hurt, but he provides just enough to get through, just enough to hang on. like the writer of this psalm, this means that we can't rely on our ability to escape or our aptitude to protect ourselves through creative mental gymnastics when we're trying to seek refuge, but that we actually believe in the truth of the scripture, that we have been redeemed, that God is with us, that he is delivering us all through our lives. The third thing that I learned in this psalm is this. It reminds us that our lives are to be lived with a radical trust. The crux of this entire psalm is in verse 5 where it says this, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Now where do we hear this? We hear this in Luke 23, 46, as Jesus is on the cross and he says this. He says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, being Jewish, knew this psalm. And so he identifies in this moment with a psalm that is written for a community to express lament, but then also to express this trust. 
And so as he's hanging on the cross, having just pleaded with God a couple hours earlier to take this cup, saying, if there's any other way, please, Lord, he now displays this incredible trust, an unexplainable trust, a radical trust by saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. Essentially saying, Lord, I trust you with everything that I have. I may not know your plans all the time. I may not even like your plans all the time, but I trust you. I give you everything. Into your hands I commit all that I have. Now, it's radical because this is completely against our nature. It's radical because people outside of our world don't understand this. It's radical because it doesn't really make sense to trust the Lord in that way. It means that we no longer have those plan B's in our pocket, saying, well, I'm going to trust God, but if he doesn't do things in completely the way that I want him done, then I got plan B, and I can rely on that. It means that we throw our contingency plans out the door. It means that we stop saying that we trust Jesus, but then rely exhaustively on our own strength. It means that we actually believe in his provision. We actually believe in his faithfulness, in his protection, in his plan. And then we live according to these things. We have two uh, twin boys who are 24 months, and I've learned this idea of trust in watching them. Our boys have no plans. And it's pretty evident when you see our living room <laughs> at the end of a day. They don't wake up thinking about their plans or what they're going to do or what they're going to get accomplished. They don't have a five-year plan or goals that they're trying to achieve. They wake up and they just trust that Grace or I are going to come down and get them. Then they trust that they're going to be fed. They trust that there's going to be somebody there to protect them and care for them. They trust that we are going to be there. And that's all they know. That speaks pretty loudly, and I think that's why Jesus talks about the little children. I think that's why Jesus says, don't hinder these as they come to me, and you should become like one of these. Become like a child in the way that you trust me. You see, we spend so much of our world trying to become older and more mature, and yet Jesus says, no, it's not about that. It's about becoming like a child and having this radical trust in your Lord. I'm persuaded that lives lived with this kind of trust are radical. They're radically simple. They're radically restful, radically fulfilling, radically meaningful. And it's only when we begin to trust this way that we'll experience that. Let me conclude with this. I was reminded the other day uh, of a Bonhoeffer quote, which many of us have probably heard, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There's not a lot of mystery in this quote. It is kind of as it sounds. The Christian life is to come and die, to die to our selfishness, to die to our sin, to die to our bitterness, our entitlement, our stress, our, habit, our habitual whatever. But it's this idea that Jesus bids us to come and to die, to come and to trust with everything that we have. And I think what's interesting about 
this quote in Psalm 31 is they're speaking the same thing. It may look different from the onset, but they're essentially speaking the same thing. See, Psalm 31, even before Jesus models this, speaks it. It speaks it by giving us the ability to individually and communally wrestle with God. It speaks it by reminding us that God is our lasting refuge, that we can go on no longer just by our own strength, but we find refuge in him. And it speaks it by showing us that God's desire is that we trust him with everything that we are and everything that we have. It's funny because I feel like we often are up here and we say the same things week in and week out. We talk about finding refuge in God. We talk about trusting the Lord. And there are nuances to who's up here, how they speak differently. There are stylistic differences and the scriptures are different. But it's all kind of saying the same thing. And that's what's so intriguing about the gospel message. Is it's this incredibly simplistic yet, yet complicated message. It's simplistic because Jesus calls us to love him and to love others with all that we have. When you just say it, that's actually not that complicated. Love others and love me. And yet it's complicated because every single Sunday we say the same things and then we need to go back home and figure out how do I actually do that? How do I die to myself today? How do I care for my wife, my husband, my neighbor? How do I actually love the Lord? How do I find refuge in him? How do I trust him with everything? And so what's beautiful about Psalm 31 is that it is the gospel truth even before the gospels were written. God desires that we have relationship with him. He says that he is faithful to be our refuge in the midst of pain. And what he asks is our undivided trust. And in that, we can celebrate. In that, we can find hope. In that, we can go from here and we can move in a way to learn how to trust. Psalm 31 ends with a beautiful section of praise, and I want to close this way. So I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me, and I'm going to read verses 19 through 24, because we didn't study them. I thought maybe I would read them, and then we will pray. And the worship band will come up and, and we'll sing one more song as we exit. So this is what verses 19 through 24 say. How abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all and those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence, you hid them from all human intrigues. You kept them safe in your dwelling from accusing tongues. Praise be to the Lord, for he showed me the wonders of his love. When I was in the city under siege, in my alarm I said, I am cut off from your sight. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord, all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those who are true to him, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord.